This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Jesse Puji, and today we are breaking down Viacom CBS. This episode has a different format. You'll hear from both an investor and from company management. Chris Morangi from Gabelli Asset Management starts us off with a history of Viacom CBS. He goes deep into the dynamics of content creation, curation, and distribution, hitting home the value of IP. Then he helps break down how Viacom CBS is transitioning from a shrinking linear business to a growing streaming business. Next, I sit down with the CFO of Viacom CBS, Naveen Chopra. He shares his views on the business today, how he thinks about capital allocation, and how streaming will evolve for Viacom CBS. Please enjoy this business breakdown. Chris, welcome to Business Breakdowns. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, likewise. Let's let's jump right into it. So today we're breaking down CBS. For those who don't know, what is CBS? And just tell us about what the business does. The existential question is, what is a media company? And media companies broadly are funding the creation of content, and they are distributing it to the consumers. Their role has evolved over time. They started as a radio company moved on to broadcast television and then to the golden age of cable. And now we're into the third or fourth age of media, which is the internet age. Again, trying to adopt their model to those changes. And if we back up for a second, there's these media conglomerates. I don't understand them all that well. Like, What does a typical media conglomerate look like and how is CBS similar or different to the typical conglomerate? And maybe go a double click into each piece of the business that a typical conglomerate has. The basis for most of the media conglomerates today were the big broadcast networks. There were three of them, CBS, NBC, and ABC, and later came Fox, and some people count the CW. But that's essentially how consumers received all their content for most of the post-war years up until the 80s and 90s when cable came along. And so that serves as the core for Viacom CBS, the CBS network, one of those original big three that both produces and distributes content. And they do so in many cases with affiliates. They program primetime and they essentially rent that content to affiliates. They also broadcast it themselves in most of the major NFL cities. Beyond the broadcast networks, a lot of those same companies invested in cable networks as cable came to town and offered the opportunity to watch more than just those three or four channels. They invested in lots of other content niches. And of course, Viacom was their early Probably their most famous network was MTV for Gen Xers like me. That was pretty meaningful, rebellious, edgy. Of course, Viacom is also known for Nickelodeon, BET, Comedy Central, and a number of other cable networks that came along. And those are still obviously operational and quite profitable. I should also mention another important part of the business, of course, which is the Paramount Studio. And there were a limited number of major film studios in the US and the world. And those Hollywood studios continue to dominate the production of film content. Paramount is certainly one of those and um, has a a very unique historic library and a continuing business of producing hit movies. There's sort of three businesses, I guess I heard there and just want to play them back and you can tell me if there's more or if I missed them. So there's the traditional television business. You put programming together, whether it's a TV show, soap opera, new show, and then you sell advertising against it. Presumably there's this cable, developing an entire cable channel, and then there's the movie business. Yeah, I think that's right. The company segments themselves into TV entertainment, cable networks, and filmed entertainment today. Importantly, they're going to resegment their business to reflect the economic reality of today, starting in 2022, when they will break out a streaming business. And the streaming business, of course, which I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time talking about, is the next evolution of how these companies deliver content to consumers. Yeah, I want to spend a lot of time on that. Before we get into that, can you give us a sense for the scale and size of Viacom? How big of a business is top line, EBITDA? how those divisions break out, and any other interesting scale metrics about their business. So in the scheme of things, 
Viacom CBS is a tiny company. Um, you're talking about 650 million shares. The stock today is around 32. So about a 20 billion equity cap. They've got about 11 billion of net debt and roughly 5 billion of EBITDA, of which the film and entertainment business is, call it two or $300 million. And TV entertainment and the cable networks are the remainder. That is a little bit understated because they are investing in the streaming business, which for the moment is a loss-making business. And one of the things that we hope to see when they resegment is just how profitable that legacy core business is, and we think will be for a very long time. But again, compared to Netflix, which is an almost $300 billion company, or Disney or some of the internet companies, it's a small one. We talked about some of the channels and the broadcast business, I guess. What's the scale? Do you have a sense for the broadcast business versus the cable business? It's roughly equal in terms of EBITDA, the growing at slightly different rates. But I think one of the things that gets lost and one of the reasons they're resegmenting is because the broadcast business today looks very much like the cable business. It was a much different business when they split this company. Originally in 2006, the broadcast business was primarily driven by advertising. But one of the great things that CBS did was create a dual revenue stream for themselves. That is advertising plus a monthly retrans fee or affiliate fee in the case of the cable networks. And that's paid on a per subscriber basis. So both cable networks and broadcast networks today make money in pretty much the same way. The lion's share of their business, how many subscribers roughly is it? And how should one think about that? Globally, I don't know what that number is. I think it's 80 million video subscribers in the US. There are about 130 million television households in the US. And they're all accessing content in different ways. Of course, in 10 or 15 years ago, the cable business was almost fully penetrated. And obviously, as we've had this phenomenon of court cutting, which started 10, 12 years ago, you have more and more consumers consuming content directly from their producers in what's called DTC, direct-to-consumer. Can you take us back today? Obviously, they've got the pieces you broke it into, but take us back. You mentioned it started as a radio business. How did CBS get started? And what have been kind of the big milestones or inflection points in the history of the business? Yeah, it's a fascinating history. Yeah, started as a radio business that had to take a license from early Federal Communications Commission. And of course, the amount of spectrum in any country is limited. And so there are a limited number of radio companies. And that evolved into the broadcast television companies, again, spectrum limited. And the broadcast television licenses came with a number of responsibilities. Bill Paley was the president of the CBS television network for many years. He is a very famous character in the history of media. But interestingly, CBS had a business called Viacom, which created television content for others, syndicated content. And because of some changes in the rules, they were forced to separate that business from the mothership from CBS. And so that was really the first separation of these two businesses. And Viacom, of course, grew as one of the growth leaders in the cable network business and was taken over by Sumner Redstone. I don't have all the dates in front of me, but taken over by Sumner Redstone in a takeover battle with Barry Diller of QVC. And later he added CBS, which included the radio business and the television business. And those were separated in 2006 and then remerged last year. Hearing you talk, there's like radio, there's broadcast, there's cable. Can you talk about each of those inflection points and sort of what impact they had on creating what we see today for Viacom CBS? I think what's important to understand is it's the story that's important. Sumner Redstone and, and others have been cited as saying content is king. And I think that's true. The medium has changed. Obviously, it went from purely voice to video. Now we're back to voice and podcasts and other things. But it's all about being creative and understanding how to nurture content, how to nurture creativity, how to invest in those programs. It's actually, in some ways, like being a venture capitalist. You invest in various stages of content, you kill the ones that don't work, you feed the ones that do, and hopefully end up on net with more hits than misses. And when you think about the marketplace, for the first part of the answer, leave aside streaming and what's going on there, but maybe pre-streaming, maybe 15 years ago, what did the competitive environment and marketplace look like for a company like CBS and Viacom? The competitive environment was very favorable for the programmers. Basically, if you think back pre-internet 15, 20 years ago, these companies really only had two ways to reach the consumer. It was cable or satellite. There are two satellite companies and a cable company, a cable distributor in any given market. 
And it was very difficult to have the scale to get on the dial for the cable or satellite companies. And so that gave these intermediaries, the cable programmers, leverage with the content creators. And ultimately, as they pulled together packages, content gave them leverage with the distributors. And so this concept of I want my TV, which actually evolved because in the early days, that's how MTV got carriage on cable systems. It was really word of mouth. They started in certain parts of the country, word got around that there was this edgy cable network that was showing music videos. MTV at the time convinced consumers that everybody should have their MTV. That's how it got broad carriage. And periodically, there were negotiations between the distributors and the programmers. And the programmers had the ears and eyes of the consumers and were often able to persuade the distributors to carry them or else because consumers would leave, would cut their cable if they didn't have the programming that they wanted. In my head, at least, there's you've got NBC, CBS, you've got the big networks, these conglomerates. Pre-streaming or in a world without streaming, how did they compete with one another? How did that marketplace work? Going way back to even before cable, again, this was an advertising business and advertisers wanted to reach consumers and they had limited ways to do that in mass scale. And, and one of the best ways to do it was to buy advertising time on television and key programs in prime time. And so each year, the big television networks would pre-sell ad time, what's called the upfront. And obviously that time was limited. There were only so many minutes per show of advertising availability and that drove price And that worked for a very long time, still works today. Obviously, there are a limited number of rating points, a limited number of television that each individual watches. And so that that has value to advertisers. But then we moved into the dual revenue stream model in the cable world, where not only were these networks taking a piece of the advertising, but they were also getting paid for their carriage by the distributors. And the distributors, of course, were charging the consumers a subscription fee to get that content. I want to get into the business model of Viacom CBS. And I guess there's there's advertising, there's the carriage rates, and then there's obviously the movie business. And I feel like one of the cool things about this show is things you never knew about, you can come away having a sense for. So maybe as a starting point, if you were to start with a channel, pick MTV, pick TNT, it doesn't matter. I'm curious just to understand how does the economics of that individual business work? What do they get paid typically on average per subscriber? What does it cost them to produce content? What does the PL of that look like? It's a dual revenue stream model. So you're starting with, in the case of the cable networks, affiliate fees, which can range from a few cents per sub per month to several dollars. The top end of that would be many of the sports oriented cable networks, like an ESPN or some of the regional sports networks. For a typical widely distributed cable network, a couple dollars per subscriber per month. And then on top of that, they can generate a significant amount of advertising revenue. Some of that advertising revenue gets actually split with the distributor, but the programmers keep the majority of it. So that's essentially the revenue. And then in terms of cost, obviously, you're talking about content being the largest cost, and that can vary significantly. And that content typically will get amortized because it's not just shown once and deleted, but can get repurposed over many years and and in many forms. You're talking about In the pre-streaming days, very high EBITDA margins for cable programming businesses, call it 40-50% kind of margins. I'll just take kind of run with your example as a case study, not a real thing, but hey, it's two bucks a month for a sub. I have 50 million subs. I'm a pretty widely distributed business. So that's 100 million. And maybe I make 50 million in ad sales. I make more from my fees. So I make $150 million a year. 40% 40% EBITDA margin business, so 60. Where's that other 90 going? How much do they actually spend on programming? I'm curious, like, what does a show cost to produce or syndicate? Like, give us a sense for how that stuff all breaks down. Of the remaining PL, the, again, the largest cost would be the content itself. There's really not a lot of other costs beyond that. There's obviously marketing and GNA, but those are relatively small. The costs are really what you see on the screen for the most part. Have there been channels in history that are? way more profitable because their content's really cheap and really catchy and then ones that have been really bad business. What makes a good channel and a bad channel from a business perspective? Typically, the most expensive content is the content you don't own and is often sports content. So you read periodically about these gigantic sums of money that the broadcasters pay to the NFL or to baseball or, or the NBA. And that is consistently the most watched content on these channels. But obviously, the programmers have to pay for that very costly programming, but still very 
profitable programming, programming that draws eyeballs to the overall network. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's the gift that keeps on giving of reality TV. Those tend to be very low cost because you're not paying, in many cases, the actors on those programs. That's why over the years, we've seen a mix of more reality shows onto many of these networks. The movie business sounds like a small part of their business. Is it worth spending time on that just to understand what may be interesting or distinct about it? It's a small part of their business in terms of EBITDA, but it's important to the overall business because it is such an important content engine. And although small and EBITDA actually could have, and we believe does have significant value. I mean, if you look at what Amazon is paying to acquire MGM, it's eight and a half billion dollars. And MGM is a smaller studio than Paramount with really one major franchise. That's the Bond franchise, which they control, but don't really own. Think about all the franchises and the library value at Paramount. And it should be as least as much as that. It's an important part of the business. It's a differentiated part of the business. It's a business that I think a lot of big tech companies in particular would love to get their hands on. Before we talk about the changing tides, you know, you mentioned earlier, right, the Sumner Redstone content is king. I'm curious how you think about durable competitive advantages in a business like CBS and Viacom and maybe double clicking on that concept. Like what is a content advantage? How are they big better than other people? How does that show up from your vantage point? It's hard to discern, obviously, but there is a skill set involved, a skill set to being able to consistently or more consistently than the other guys pick content that appeals to the consumer. It's usually not just one person, although there have been people in the past who have been regarded to have golden touches in terms of the content that gets picked, but it goes deeper than that. You know, Obviously, there are hundreds, if not thousands of individuals at Viacom CBS who are involved in all stages of that content selection and nurturing. So in terms of the durable competitive advantage, part of it relates to the libraries that each of these media companies have that can be drawn upon to create new content. Part of it has to do with the brands that they've developed over the years that stand for something. Part of it has to do with just, again, that human capital, that human element that makes one, to continue the analogy, VC better than another. When you look at a market cap or something of a CBS, to what dollar amount like roughly do you ascribe the catalog? The market seems to imply a very low value for that library of film. I mean, the library of films at Paramount alone is probably worth billions of dollars. And that excludes the enormous value of the libraries at CBS and Viacom. You think about it shows like Star Trek going back as far as I Love Lucy and others that are just evergreen properties. It hasn't been a, a new I Love Lucy made in decades. And it still gets shown and paid for around the world. We've been talking around it. So let's get right into it now. The streaming, to me, again, I think of this as two separate parts of their business. We've seen with Warner... HBO Max, okay, now it's available in the theater, but also available at home and the Paramount Plus product. And then separately, all the channels that they're now selling. I would love to understand how you think this inflection point impacts their business. What are the economics you have to believe in various scenarios for it to play out favorably and unfavorably, and just kind of get into the depths there of your thinking? Let's say a few things. First, I'd start off by saying that we don't think that the linear business, that's the traditional business, what some people call the legacy business, is just going to melt away. It's in decline. It's been in a pretty steady decline. It may decline faster than we expect as time goes on, and that's at risk. But we think for certainly the forecast period, that's a quite profitable business for them. And it's certainly not mutually exclusive. Content can get shown both in the linear format and the streaming format. But the bet you're making when you're investing in these traditional media companies is that they're able to make up for, more than make up for, the losses in linear revenue and profitability by going direct to the consumer in their streaming services. Obviously, the world has changed considerably. As I outlined earlier, you went from a world where access to the consumer was constrained, either because of broadcast licenses or because of physical plant, either in form of satellites or cable networks that pass to home, to now virtually ungated access to the consumer via the internet. And that's allowed some very powerful things. First of all, it's the first connection that's truly bi-directional. Entertainment companies are actually getting information about those consumers themselves, and that can be used in some powerful ways, including in marketing, which we can talk about. It also means that there is an enormous amount of content that can reach the consumer directly and the opportunity for niche content to reach those consumers. 
And so that opens up more competition. It opens up different ways to monetize. And that's really what each media company is trying to figure out today. And what's similar about the streaming business in terms of business functions and capabilities? And what are new things or different things that they have to learn and do when you think about assessing whether or not they'll be successful? In the cable world, obviously the relationship with the consumer was really shared, if not dominated by the distributor. The distributor did the billing, did the marketing of these packages, and then they sent the check basically to the programmers to Viacom. In the new world, obviously, in many cases where there is a true direct-to-consumer relationship, Viacom needs to obviously be responsible for marketing of Paramount Plus, billing and taking care of their customers. So there's a little bit more SG&A cost there in terms of the business. But again, as we'll talk about, the model is evolving and, and there will be aggregators of these streaming services will take on some of that functionality as well. What do you see as the way that the streaming businesses, where is it today and where is it going to evolve? So it's a little bit of the Wild West today. There are a lot of streaming services out there competing for consumer attention. Consumers are often left to wonder where the show that they heard about around the water cooler is located. Sometimes they're hard to find. You've got to switch between apps when you're sitting in front of the television. So I think there is a role for aggregators. And there's a great race to fulfill this role as an aggregator between, in many cases, some of the traditional distributors like the cable companies. Comcast, for example, has taken a pretty leading role in that with their Flex and Glass products. These are essentially pieces of hardware and software that allow consumers to switch between multiple streaming apps and search multiple streaming apps at one touch. Functions much like an Apple TV. And then, of course, you've got the big internet companies who are doing the same thing, including Apple and, and Amazon, who is retailing uh, streaming services as well. Viacom itself has struck some aggregation deals. They're getting included in mobile subscription packages by T-Mobile in the US and also getting retailed by Comcast and Sky in Europe. So that's probably the way the world moves. You'll have a mixed pie of consumers receiving the services directly from the streamers, also from aggregators like Comcast and Amazon and others. One unique component in this streaming world, which is near and dear to my heart, is marketing and customer acquisition. How do you think about that in their business? How does it play into the economics of the streaming business? What do they have to get really right about it? Everybody is intent on maximizing lifetime value of the subscribers here. We use a lot of lifetime value calculations. It's a little harder to do in the streaming business because the content is a fixed cost. This is not as discreet as $1,000 to acquire a home security subscriber and then keeping them as a customer for seven years, they pay back in three and that's a very high IRR. Obviously, you want to minimize the subscriber acquisition cost or, or make that efficient and or minimize churn. And minimize churn, which is probably the most powerful variable in that equation, as you know, by keeping customers happy. That means keeping the content fresh and not giving customers a, a reason to drop the streaming service because there's nothing new on TV for a while. Let's look forward a little bit here. When you think about five or 10 years, if the market cap double in five or 10 years, you know what did they do really right and what happened in the macro environment? And then I'll flip the question in the other direction. I think that's the right way to put it. So right now, as I mentioned, the linear business is in decline but it's in a controlled decline, mid-single-digit kind of subscriber losses, offset somewhat by increases in rate. Obviously, rate is not going to stand still. And overall, we think that the business can grow as these companies acquire subscribers directly and increase their direct-to-consumer subscribers on the way to that $75 million plus that they outlined. The market is clearly very skeptical about Viacom's ability to pull this off. It's not just Viacom. I think you look at what's happened to Discovery and, and AMC as those concerns are, are similarly shared. But the roadmap is out there in other industries and in cable itself. Look at what has happened with Disney, which was one of the first to go all in on their streaming service, Disney Plus, and the blueprint is there. So at this point, it's largely about execution and, and getting the content right, getting the marketing right, the packaging right. And it seems that Viacom has had a good start in that. Um, they are seeing an acceleration in subscription net ads. So if they can keep the content coming and keep it interesting for the consumers, they should be successful. Are there other opportunities in front of them? Like, for example, international, 
or other growth vectors that they could be taking up that would help them scale? 2020 and 2021 were domestically focused, but 22 and beyond is probably more internationally focused. And there's a huge opportunity internationally, obviously, just looking at how many eyeballs are in the US versus outside the US. It's much greater outside the US. I think one of the other fundamental changes in the media business over the last 10 years has been that this has become a much more global business. It's transcended languages and cultures. And I think what's one thing Netflix has demonstrated is that content is very portable and consumers in the US are more than willing to watch content in, in Hebrew or French or other dialects and not just those in foreign countries willing to watch things in English. So that has changed the business a little bit. It's created more opportunity, but it's put a premium on scale as well. And what about the other direction? If you know market caps cut in half in five, 10 years, what went wrong? What did they not execute on? What are other macro factors? It probably means that the linear business declined faster than anyone expected, declined faster than the market expected. There was intense competition for content and content costs went up significantly. They weren't able to compete. They weren't able to put on the shows that people wanted to watch and just never able to get to scale in their streaming services. The last few questions we ask everyone who who comes on the show, lessons for builders, lessons for investors, and places for further study. So let's just take them one at a time. If you're an entrepreneur executive listening to this, what do you think the lesson is for you at the CBS story? There have been a lot of heuristics. There have been a lot of examples of transitions, successful and not successful in this industry. The music industry has been successful, left for dead at one point with the rise of Napster and, and now rebundled and quite successful. The story in newspapers is a little bit more mixed with a couple of exceptions, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. That industry has gone through pretty unhappy change. The most successful transition in the media business, what should be a business case study for this is Netflix itself, which of course started as a DVD by mail company and now is perhaps the leading streaming company in the world. But the most interesting thing about Netflix is that you can actually still rent DVDs by mail from Netflix. So they haven't given up that business. It's a good example of the fact that you can still nurture that profitable legacy business while changing what you're doing. Wow. I did not know that. That's a great fun fact. And what about on the investor side? If you're an investor, what do you think the big lesson is for CBS? Well, again, as an investor, especially as a value investor, we can't separate valuation from the success of the business. And we recognize that Viacom has lots of challenges, mostly industry-related challenges, structural challenges in the business. The current valuation implies a pretty low chance of success. And we think the chances of success on the part of this management team with this heritage are much higher than the market is giving them credit for. Well, Chris, thanks so much for spending time with us today and teaching us all about the entertainment business and Viacom CBS. Glad to be here. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris. Next, you will hear me sit down with Naveen Chopra, CFO of Viacom CBS. Naveen Chopra, welcome to Business Breakdowns. Hey, Jesse. Thank you for having us. Let's jump right in. Viacom is a large business made up of multiple smaller divisions and businesses. Can you just give us a sense for how you think about breaking them down in your mind? Look, at a high level, I think about Viacom CBS as one of the world's largest content both creators, suppliers, and and distributors. There's obviously a lot of different parts to that, which maybe I can try to walk you through a little bit. So one of the large parts of our business, which includes CBS, which I think most people are familiar with, at least in the US market. It is the number one broadcast network, and it's the home of some of the most watched shows year over year in the United States, things like the NCIS, franchise, the FBI franchise, et cetera. It's also the home of AFC football, golf, SEC football. So very, very broad audience. We also have a broadcast television presence globally. And that extends from places like Channel 5 in the UK to Network 10 in Australia to Telefe in Argentina, which is one of many Latin American markets where we operate. So there's a big broadcast component. We also have a business operating a large portfolio of cable networks. That includes channels like MTV, Nickelodeon, Comedy Central, 
BET, as well as premium cable network, Showtime being the largest of those. And that's obviously a business where we supply those channels to pay television operators around the world. We also operate and own the Paramount Pictures Movie Studio, been around for many, many decades and continues to be the source of content that people would recognize past and present, everything from Godfather to Forrest Gump to Star Trek to Mission Impossible series, Top Gun, storied history of movie making as part of Paramount. Our new business is streaming, and we operate a number of different streaming services around the world. The flagship streaming service is Paramount Plus, which was launched in March of 2021. But we also operate Showtime OTT, we operate BET Plus, and we have ad-supported streaming service called Pluto TV, which is actually the largest, what is known as fast or free ad-supported television service to date. And that is a major growth area for Viacom CBS, both the subscription side and the advertising side. And we leverage a lot of the content and distribution assets that we have in the broadcast, the cable, the theatrical businesses in order to help power everything that we're doing in streaming. And just to put a few numbers around all that, the business as a whole today is roughly a $25 billion top line business that's based on 2020 numbers. It generated in 2020 in excess of $5 billion of adjusted OIBDA or uh, EBITDA and about $2.5 billion of free cash flow. The traditional businesses, meaning the broadcast business and the cable networks business, are the largest parts of the business today, but streaming is rapidly growing and will probably be 15% of the business this year and significantly more in the years to come. Now, that's a great overview. I want to dig into each of those businesses sort of individually to understand a little bit more about their size, their scale, their profitability, how you think about the cost structure of each of them, and then tie it together to give someone a perspective on Viacom. So let's just go one by one. Starting with the broadcast business, what size of that $25 billion is that? What drives the majority of the revenue? And maybe you can just always walk us through the PL at a high level. The way to think about the broadcast business is that it is monetized in two ways. We generate a significant amount of advertising revenue from advertisers who pay for advertising in our programming. And then we also receive fees from local broadcast stations who want to carry our programming. We own some of those stations and then we license our programming to other stations. And so that generates what we report as affiliate revenue in our financials. So when you look at Viacom CBS as a whole, it generates, again, if we use 2020 numbers as an example, generated a little over $8 billion worth of advertising revenue, a little over $8 billion worth of affiliate revenue, about $2.5 billion of streaming revenue, and then about $6 billion of what we describe as licensing and, and other revenue. We'll dig into all of those further. But the broadcast business, if you will, or what we describe as the TV entertainment business, is about a $10 billion business. It's a little murky only in that that includes some elements of our streaming businesses because we don't necessarily separate those out in our publicly reported financials to date. And if we try to take that, so the $10 billion business and underneath that is CSI, the sports stuff you talked about earlier, news programming... I guess maybe just at a high level first, what are the costs of running a channel as big as CBS? What are the varying buckets of costs underneath that revenue line? There's really three primary types of expenses. First and foremost, by far, are um, content investments that we make. At the end of the day, we are a content company. It all comes down to being able to produce very high quality content that appeals to a large number of people. And so the number one thing that we invest in is our content. And that is the case in all of our businesses. That is our largest expense. We also invest to market that content. When you launch a new show, you do have to build an audience for it. In some cases, we can use our existing audiences and parlay them into audiences for new programming. But you always have to supplement that with some element of marketing. So we do spend a fair amount of money in, in marketing. 
our other primary expense is our people is obviously critical to our our ongoing ability to innovate, run the business, sell advertising, et cetera. Of the, you know, say $10 billion in top line, how do those buckets break out? I think it's fair to say that in terms of total expenses, content is going to be more than half, and in some cases, significantly more than half in most of these businesses. Directionally, like when we think about content, how wide is that range of content expenses? I mean, I know there's tons of different types of content. Do you have like rules of thumb you use or perspective that kind of give that spectrum? What's high margin content? What's low margin content? If we start at the very top across the company, we spend, again, I'm going to use 2020 numbers here. These will be higher because the business is growing and also because 2020 was a heavily COVID impacted year. But in 2020, we spent roughly $15 billion across the company on content. And the number's probably low relative to the normalized level because during COVID, there was a lot of content that we were not able to produce. Within that number includes everything from big theatrical movies to NFL content that we license to shows like NCIS, FBI, to reality programming that we have on a number of our cable networks, news programming, a bunch of kids programming, and increasingly original content that we're creating exclusively for our streaming services. Each of those types of content varies materially in terms of the cost of those shows. So just to give you a few examples, theatrical movies can range, people have heard a bunch of anecdotes around these things, but theatrical movies can range anywhere from low double digits, $20, $30 million movies to a couple hundred million dollar plus movies if it's big stars, very complex production, et cetera. Honestly, the size of the movie from an investment perspective doesn't necessarily translate to profitability. There are a lot of examples of movies that were made for modest investments that ended up doing very well. Great example of that in our world recently is the Quiet Place franchise. The original Quiet Place was a very cost-effective movie and ended up doing several hundred million dollars of box office. And we just this year released a Quiet Place Part 2, which was a little more expensive, but also has done very, very well. Before we go on, I, I wanted to talk about the movie business and we're here now, so let's talk about it. It seems like a fascinating capital allocation problem. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how it works? Like, How do you decide how much to invest in movies, how many to make? How do you approach thinking about return thresholds? Just give us a sense for how that actually works in the business. Well, the, the business is in the midst of a lot of change, as you've no doubt read about. The source of that change is the fact that the business model is evolving from one that was primarily about theatrical box office revenue, then supplemented with downstream, what we call windows, where the movie becomes available on home entertainment. In the old days was renting DVDs. Nowadays, it's paying to download a movie, as an example. And then after that window goes to pay television services and so on down the road. Let's talk about the pre-COVID model first. And then we'll talk about how it's changing, obviously, and the obvious changes in the world. So it used to be that 2019, 2018. Yeah. And again, every movie is a little bit different. But the traditional business model was probably half of the revenue coming from the theatrical window and then the remaining revenue coming through these downstream windows. And anytime a, a movie is made, the business has what's called an ultimate for the movie, which looks at over a multi-year period of time, what is the total revenue that's going to be generated from all of these various windows versus the investments in production, marketing, et cetera, in order to facilitate that revenue. Depending on the type of movie and the audience that it would appeal to, that mix might be very different. So a couple examples, a children's movie might have a bigger downstream window than a high-end artsy adult movie, as an example. Just because kids are willing to watch movies multiple times, the pre-streaming era, people would buy tons of kids' movies on DVDs. That sort of changes the mix of box office versus other sources of revenue. Similarly, movies that have some movies have more or less international appeal that can change the mix of revenue. We typically look at box office revenue in three components. We look at the domestic box office, 
we look at international box office, and then we look at the China box office separately, which is a function of the fact that it's both a large market and also one that some movies get to play in and other movies don't, depending on the content of the movie. And just to get a sense before, so you do 15 movies, I'm making up numbers, they'd be 100 million-ish on average. Some are big, some are small. You missed said earlier about half or a little bit more than half would come from the theater and the rest would come sort of downstream. Am I getting it? Yes. I mean, that last part varies, again, from title to title. So there'll be somewhere might be significantly more than 50% coming downstream. How much does it range? Uh, there's probably some that are 25% box office, 75% downstream, and some that are the reverse. And there's always a lot, again, pre-COVID made of the opening weekend and how important that is. Is that truly important? Yes. And in fact, that's one of the things that is very directly related to how the business model is evolving because traditionally movies would be released in a theater. They would not be made available through other channels for a pretty lengthy period of time, anywhere from call it 90 to in some cases, even like 120 days. But when you look closely at the economics of that business, the amount of revenue that was actually being generated in the post 60-day window, in the post 45-day window, et cetera, starts to decline materially. Set differently, the vast majority of the box office revenue is captured in the first four to six weeks. And the magnitude of that is, I don't want to say necessarily driven, but the opening weekends are highly indicative of what are you going to be able to generate over the following four to six weeks. But the fact that not a whole lot of revenue is generated after the first four to six weeks in the theater is what has given rise to the way that we and others are starting to think differently about releasing movies, which is to say, we think we can keep a movie in a theater for about 45 days and then move it to a streaming platform and sort of get the best of both worlds, meaning we can still capture the vast majority of the box office revenue and we can put the movies on a streaming service at a point in time where they are still very fresh for consumers. And having fresh theatrical content on a streaming service is something that I think we and others are increasingly aware as a major driver of customer acquisition and engagement. So in some ways, the movie, you get that revenue rip on it. On that question, like post-COVID, I don't know if these numbers are broad. How much is box office attendance down still? I think that we're probably running somewhere in the 70 to 80% of pre-COVID levels right now. We do see the trends continuing to move in the right direction. Obviously, difficult to predict because the pandemic-related news can change people's behavior. But I think the way we look at the business is that if the pandemic were to end tomorrow, we probably still wouldn't go all the way back to pre-COVID levels just because consumer behavior is changing, obviously, in part catalyzed by the pandemic. But we probably would get back to call it 90% of pre-COVID levels, which is to say, you know, 10% of the business is sort of more of a permanent change. And then the idea is, hey, with 45 days, we get that same kind of the old school way. After 45 days, instead of getting them to buy the title, let's get them to sign up for a subscription. And it's essentially part of your customer acquisition cost. Yeah. And again, you can think of it as a bit of our default model, but the reality is there are movies that will have different windows. So there'll be movies we release that have longer theatrical windows and movies that might even be shorter. And we have been experimenting with these throughout 2021. We've had some movies where we've gone day and date with theatrical and streaming releases. We've done movies that are exclusive streaming, but we are starting to feel like movies that we, well, we do an exclusive theatrical release after 45 days, we like getting them to our streaming service. I know Warner and HBO Max have done the sort of same day thing throughout the pandemic. Is it very obvious in the data that, that it's driving a ton of customer acquisition? For the movies that we have released day and date, we definitely see a benefit in terms of the level of acquisition and engagement on streaming versus a movie that shows up 45 days later. You have to weigh that against the fact that you are in some cases, sacrificing box office revenue in order to do that, which is one of the reasons that we've been very selective about the movies that we release day and day. Because as one example, 
Paw Patrol. It's a huge kids franchise generally and one of our big releases, movie releases in 2021. That was a movie where it was pretty clear to us that we were probably going to gain more on streaming than we would lose in the box office. That analysis may not necessarily be the same for other movies. We think about a movie like Top Gun, for example, Top Gun 2, will be releasing in 2022. We have delayed the release of that movie in order to make sure that it can have a full box office run. It's a movie that was meant to be seen on a big screen with phenomenal sound. It's an incredible movie. And it just wouldn't make sense in that case to sacrifice the box office revenue because it's just going to be a great experience for consumers. Are there any movies or have you seen any movies yet that you get the best of both worlds? Like somehow these two things drive each other. You see both go up. Yes, that's actually what happened with Paw Patrol. Prior to our decision to release Paw Patrol day and date, we had, you know, I mentioned these ultimate models. We had one of these ultimate models that was put together and it assumed that we would have a pretty traditional exclusive theatrical release. And so we have researchers who do all sorts of analysis to figure out, okay, based on this movie and the genre and the release date and the earlier reviews and the screenings and all the different data that we collect, how much box office is it likely to do? So we had a number based on that. Then we ultimately made the decision to release the movie day and date on both Paramount Plus and in the box office. We ended up generating more box office revenue than we had projected, assuming it was only going to be in the box office. And it was one of the biggest hits that we've released on Paramount+. Plus. And the reason for that is that there's a lot of synergy in the marketing of these titles, particularly around theatrical movies and something like Paw Patrol, which for us was not just a movie, it's a whole franchise that has a massive consumer products element to it. If anyone's got kids under five, they probably have more Paw Patrol toys lying around their house than they might like to admit. Paw Patrol had a huge presence in Walmart, as an example, had a huge presence online. And so all of that marketing is kicking in. It's promoting both Paramount Plus, it's promoting watching the movie in the theater. Kids movie, people who see it in the theater then want to be able to rewatch it. So they go to Paramount Plus. So it really eventizes the entire thing. It amplifies the marketing investments that we make. And I think in that case was definitely a case of the day and date release creating a bigger overall opportunity. It sort of reminds me of like a music concert. They come in town, there's an event, but you still go and buy their CDs and you still go and buy their merch and all that. Like, it sounds like a very cool adjustment of the new era. It's like you watch the movie and I can imagine my kids are six and four and they come home and they go, I want to watch it again tomorrow. And I go, oh gosh, I got to go subscribe to this thing now because, because they want to watch it again. We call them franchises and we increasingly believe that that is the business model of the future, particularly in the theatrical world, because with the ongoing evolution of the box office, you just can't generate as much box office revenue down the road as we've been able to generate historically. In streaming, it is more challenging to attract an audience with entirely new IP because it's a crowded space. There's a lot of different content. If you think about the number of different streaming services that you have to choose from. And then when you open up any given streaming app, there's tons of content stuck in front of you. So how do you decide what to watch? Well, it turns out people gravitate to content that they have some level of familiarity with. I know this title. I know this actor. I know, oh, this is a prequel to something else that I've watched. And that's where franchises are so important. So whether we think about franchises like SpongeBob or Paw Patrol, or we think A Quiet Place is evolving into a franchise, Star Trek is a franchise for us, South Park is a franchise for us. These are all things that allow us to leverage some IP that customers know and have some loyalty to, and then to create derivatives of that content, to extend that content, both in some cases are theatrical product, in some cases on linear television, cable, streaming. The ultimate goal for us is to leverage the content across all of these different distribution platforms. And that's where we really see a lot of leverage. And that's why having all these assets available to us is so important to creating value. Is that really how you think of the business, I guess, from your seed? How much does it cost me to make this content? And how many different places can I leverage it to drive revenue? One of the questions we get quite frequently 
in relation to our streaming business is, wow, you guys are obviously not as big as Netflix yet, but you got to produce a lot of content. It's expensive to produce content. How is that math going to work? Because you're not really generating the same level of streaming revenue as larger scale streaming service yet. And part of the answer to that is, yes, we're not generating as much streaming revenue. We happen to be growing much faster than a number of those other players. But we are able to leverage those content investments across multiple other distribution channels. So whether you take something like the NFL, where we generate a ton of advertising revenue and affiliate revenue from pay television providers, and then we're able to take that same content, make it available on Paramount Plus and generate streaming revenue in addition to those other sources of revenue. That's a great model for us. Same with a movie. So we just released Clifford a couple of weeks ago, day and date also in theatrical and on Paramount Plus. That's a movie that will generate revenue from both the box office and streaming, and then it'll have further downstream revenue. And then we talked about something like Paw Patrol that has all of those things. It's got box office revenue. It's got a linear show. So we generate linear revenue out of it. Obviously, it's valuable in streaming. And then it's got this whole consumer products angle too, which is incredibly valuable and, and highly profitable. You mentioned Netflix. I assume they disclose this. Like, just to give everyone a sense, what do they invest in content annually? And you mentioned $15 billion, which is what CBS does. How does that compare? I don't know on a apples to apples basis in terms of my 15 billion was a 2020 number. I don't know offhand what Netflix was spending in 2020. Our 15 billion will increase over the coming years, both as we emerge from COVID and as we continue to grow our overall investment in streaming. But I think Netflix is on track to spend in the coming year or two, probably closer to 30-ish billion in content. They have the big sub base, but they don't quite have the benefit of all these other channels and places to monetize, broadly speaking. Exactly. Exactly. Let's pivot now to talk really about the future of the business, which is the streaming business. Just to kind of tee it up a little bit, we talked about the movie business, the way it's evolving. The linear business is is advertising-driven and viewership-driven, as we've discussed here in, in the other part of the episode. So in a world where you know you're making movies... You got this linear advertising business. You're already making some subscription revenue from cable providers. What's the model? How do you think about it as you transition, presumably the business coming years to just streaming only? The way we look at it is there is a fundamental change in consumer behavior that is occurring as consumers start to watch more and more content through streaming services. And there is impact in terms of linear viewing that being said, it's not entirely uh, substitution, meaning the vast majority of consumers who consume streaming services do continue to watch linear service. They continue to pay for some form of pay television. Now, that will continue to change. So we're not naive about that. But I think there was a sense historically that the traditional business might sort of fall off a cliff. We don't really see that happening. Pay television viewership, Linear viewership is declining, but it's at relatively modest, continuous decline. And we've seen industry pay television subscribers decline anywhere from, call it five to nine-ish percent over the last few years. What is happening, of course, is that on the other side, streaming is growing very rapidly. We see that as a huge opportunity for us, in part because we think we can bring something to the streaming market that has not really existed historically. Because if you think about the first wave of large-scale streaming players, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, etc., they really focused on higher-end scripted content. And what we know from our many years in the world of media is that a huge portion of viewership is actually comprised of other things, including sports and events, including news, including theatrical movies, including kids' content, unscripted or reality programming. We didn't really think that those existing services scratched those itches for consumers very well. And as the largest producer of many of those different types of content, we felt like that is a big opportunity for us. Now, obviously, you know, I don't think that that conclusion 
has been hidden from others. So you are starting to see other streaming players try to move into those genres. They are places where we have some fundamental advantages, either because we have exclusive content, we have very unique franchises, we have production scale and capability that others don't. So we're able to build a truly differentiated streaming service that we think is a very compelling complement to other services that people have in their homes. And we're seeing that prove out both in the number of streaming services that the typical consumer is paying for. It wasn't so long ago that number was two services per household, then it went to three services per household. It's now approaching four services in the United States. And we've seen some data that suggests it'll cross five relatively soon. So this change in consumer behavior is a phenomenal opportunity because it allows us to leverage a lot of the assets we've had from the traditional world. It's an even bigger market than what we had in the traditional world. And we've got a very differentiated product that we can put in front of consumers. How do you guys think about, I guess, how fast to go, how hard to go relative to the decline in the traditional business? And maybe more specifically, like what are the economics? Like, What do you charge for a current subscriber to Paramount? And how do you think about what those numbers need to look like for you to build a better business or as good, if not better business than the core, the current core business? We offer Paramount Plus today through two tiers of service. We have what we call our premium tier, which is sold for $9.99. And then we have what we call our essentials tier, which is an ad-supported tier and is priced at $4.99. We like that model. We think it allows us to address a very broad base of consumers, some who are more price sensitive than others. And we actually like the ad-supported model where we actually collect both subscription revenue and advertising revenue. And we think over time, the ARPU on, on that sort of service can actually be higher than the pure subscription model, you know, which I think services like Hulu have demonstrated. And in terms of the broader economics, consistent with what we were talking about earlier, by far the largest cost, the largest investment as it relates to streaming is content. We think of it as sort of a somewhat fixed cost or capital type investment in that you pay a lot to produce a series, whether that's big original series like recent released called Mayor of Kingstown, which is a really incredible Taylor Sheridan series. Even putting something like the NFL on Paramount Plus, those are all costs that you incur. And then you need to generate a certain level of scale in subscriber growth to fund that. And then the flywheel starts to work because as you generate more and more subscribers, you generate more revenue, you can use to fund more content, which is the way you add more subscribers, retain subscribers, et cetera. So that's the basic model. And what we like about it is that we do think there's a point in time where you generate enough scale in the combination of subscription and advertising revenue relative to fixed costs on content that it becomes a very nice model. The revenue growth over time is driven by a combination of a few things. Number one, subscriber growth, obviously. Number two, this continued growth in advertising revenue that is generated from certain tiers of the service and price increases in the subscription side of the business. We have a very, I think, compelling price point today. I would describe us as somewhat of a value price point, certainly relative to an HBO or a Netflix. And as services like Netflix have demonstrated, as our subscriber base continues to grow, as our content portfolio continues to grow, I think we will be able to price more aggressively. And so that'll be an important part of the model going forward as well. So we're still very early in the evolution of the business. So the content investments exceed the revenues that we generate. Yeah, that's sort of the nature of a growth business. But we think over time, it is a very exciting business because of the scale that we can generate and these levers that we have to generate operating margins over time. Do you guys have like a number just as an extreme case if someone never went to the theater again, never turned on one of your channels on linear, never watched through a cable provider, what you would want to make from a person, like from that person on a streaming direct basis for it to break even? I would probably answer the question somewhat indirectly, which is to say that if you look at how analysts think about the combination of broadcast and linear businesses, they would probably look at Viacom CBS and say that we generate 
somewhere, let's just say a very rough range of 10 to 17 or $18 a month from a consumer through a combination of advertising and linear fees. In the long run, like if literally all those businesses disappeared, then you'd like to be able to replace that with streaming, which interestingly is sort of where the Netflix price point is today. When you look forward a little bit, Naveen, what are the top two or three things that you're most excited about in the business? Streaming growth shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, we've had tremendous momentum with Paramount Plus, and we see that continuing in some ways. We're just getting started. So we're looking forward to driving that forward. I guess second on that list, although an extension of the first is really starting to push Paramount Plus globally. We're in about 25 markets today. That's going to expand significantly in 22 and beyond. And that'll be a great growth driver. And it will leverage a whole bunch of international assets that we have, both to help distribute Paramount Plus and also provide local content, foreign language content, et cetera. So I'm starting to think of 2022 as the year of major international expansion for us in streaming. I'm very excited about our free streaming service. Pluto TV has been an incredibly successful business. It's a model that a few years ago, frankly, people were somewhat skeptical about. Are consumers really going to use a streaming service that is ad-supported? I think that question has been answered. Pluto TV will do over a billion dollars of revenue this year. It's also generating pretty healthy operating margins, even though we're not really operating it for profitability right now. And that business has a ton of room to run in terms of engagement, international expansion, moving up the content scale in terms of quality of content, et cetera. So I'm very excited about that. And then our traditional businesses, again, I think there's been this perception of those businesses perhaps being under some significant downward pressure. And again, I don't want to suggest that we are head in the sand about the broader secular changes that are occurring with respect to streaming, um, we have found ways in both our advertising businesses and our cable network businesses to maintain the profitability of those businesses to a large extent, despite the fact that there are changes in behavior. And that's a combination of being able to drive rate increases. Fees for advertising have continued to grow nicely. We've been able to use all that to help offset some of the declines in viewership. And then we've also been very smart about how we manage spending in relation to those businesses, really driving efficiencies in multiple parts of the business and how we produce content, how we market it, et cetera. So we think we have a really powerful combination of a traditional media business that is very profitable, generates high levels of EBITDA and cash flow that we can use to fund a streaming business that has tremendous momentum, a really differentiated value proposition and a huge market opportunity. And what things keep you up at night, Naveen? It's a combination of figuring out how to move faster. Speed is important and producing great content doesn't happen overnight. So we're very focused on how do we put our dollars to work quickly and efficiently and end up with a killer content portfolio. So moving fast is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. And then our talent, whether that's talent of our employees or talent in front or behind the camera. It's a war for talent in every sense of the word. You're seeing that not just in our industry, but you're seeing it throughout the economy today. And we definitely see that in in our business. And it's something that we spend a lot of time trying to think about how are we going to hire engineers? How are we going to attract the best talent? How are we going to attract the smartest marketing people? Because at the end of the day, that's what powers our business. Are there things in the macro environment that are either things if you saw you'd be super excited about or the opposite, things that you don't want to see? Obviously, given my comments on talent, that is a macro problem for sure. We pay close attention to broader macroeconomic policy, whether it's tax policies is something that is near and dear to our hearts for a whole bunch of reasons. We're a global company. And so how global taxation standards evolve matters to us. Historically, there have been significant tax incentives related to production of content that is important to us. And we want to make sure that whether it's local or federal institutions understand the value that we create when we produce content in various places. We create a ton of jobs. We generate a lot of income in the places where we have 
production hubs, and we think that's important to the broader overall economic situation. Inflationary pressure is something that we pay a lot of attention to, especially in a world where our business is becoming more and more direct to consumer. We have to think about how do we win that share of wallet from our customer. And the last thing, the supply chain dynamics that are impacting the economy impact us as well, whether that is the form of being able to secure advertising dollars. If auto manufacturers don't have cars to sell, then they typically don't spend as much marketing and advertising those cars, which is an important part of our business. We've seen some modest impacts from that. It's something that we do think is a temporary issue, but we got to get through it. In some cases, also impacts our ability to produce content, which we talked about is sort of the, the lifeblood of our business. So we try to stay on top of all those things. So far, we think the growth opportunity is the biggest factor and all hands on deck to pursue that. We manage through some of the other headwinds. Wrapping up here, Naveen, the last question to everyone, which is, if there's one lesson here for entrepreneurs and executives, it's a three-part question. One lesson for investors and places for further study, where would you guide people to? So maybe just take them one at a time. I think for the lessons for execs and builders, I would probably come back to my point on speed, which is it's a combination of really recognizing that industries, markets can see innovations happen very quickly that fundamentally change the opportunities and challenges that you face in your business. And I think having a culture that is nimble and that can adapt to those changes is incredibly important. In terms of the investor world, my talk track there, if you will, is that I just think there are too many investors that are short-term focused. And I think people have probably missed some great opportunities by being too short-term focused. Great companies, great businesses are not built overnight, whether it's an Amazon or a Netflix or Paramount Plus. Those businesses do take a little bit of time to develop. I want investors to see the bigger opportunity and watch our progress as we execute against that. And for us, the place for further study, quite honestly, is figuring out how to continually optimize our investments in content. We're going from a world where content decisions were primarily made on the basis of a bunch of creative instinct to a world where it is a combination of creative instinct and very sophisticated data and analytics. We all want to get smarter. There's no finish line as far as that is concerned. There's always more you can learn about your customer. There's always more you can learn about how they behave. There's always more you can measure about what drives value. And you can always get smarter about how to use that information to drive decision-making. And that's something that I encourage our teams to never lose sight of and to make sure that we're continuing to invest to move down that path. Awesome. Well, Naveen, thank you so much for taking time and for breaking down Viacom for us today. Thank you. Appreciate you taking the time to go through all that with us. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 